Mark 10, 46 through 52. Another miracle of Jesus, healing of blind Bartimaeus. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Hear the word of the Lord. John Newton has an iconic line in the hymn, Amazing Grace, in which he describes conversion as the process of once being blind, then being given sight. I once was blind, but now I see. He pictures conversion to Christ as recovery of sight from blindness. But you ask an important question as we come to Mark 10 this morning. That is, what can a blind man teach us about seeing? There's great irony in this particular miracle. How could a blind man have vision to see what those with sight could not see? Now, it is true, we know we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is the evidence of what we do not see, Hebrews 11.1. 1. But could a blind man be our optometrist this morning to teach us how to see? Seeing Jesus is the most important glimpse of anything we will ever have the opportunity to see in life. Do you recognize, do we recognize in whose presence we are this morning? Do we understand our profound need of him? Blind Bartimaeus did. Are you ready for this story, this piece of history? Or could it be that we're sleepwalking through a Sunday morning? Have we seen Jesus, for all that he is? Have we seen ourselves and our need for him? Do we get Christ's mercy? Let's ponder this great passage in looking at this miracle again, and let's go two different directions this morning. First, I want to make three observations about this 
story, this piece of first century history, which will help us enter into Christ healing Bartimaeus. But secondly, this is not only a report. If we allow it, this story will get into the stuff of our heart. This story reads us and where our hearts are and where they need to be in three different ways with three different inroads, and that's what we'll do secondly. So first, three observations that help us crawl into this moment and this gospel story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We are at the narrative of Jesus' three-year life in the gospels, and we're right before the triumphal entry. We're right before Palm Sunday. He's in Jericho that's just outside of Jerusalem. He's headed up to Jerusalem where he will be greeted as the week starts with Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the week ends, of course, with crucify him. He's crucified, buried, and then we have Easter morning. And he raises from the dead. So in Luke 9.53, we'll come back to this phrase. It is said of Jesus that he set his face toward Jerusalem. So this is, he's on in earnest to get to Jerusalem. His hour has indeed come. Now Jericho was a few miles away. Herod had built his summer palace there. Herod, a leader of that region, a kingly leader, and it was, became an affluent area down there. And affluence uh, reproduces after its own kind, so others built nice places down there, but also affluence breeds beggars. So this was a great place to hang out because the people had means, and he would spread his cloak out as a blind man, and he would beg for alms in a rich neighborhood. Now, let's think of three observations. Observation number one, the Old Testament declared that when Messiah comes, the blind will see. You say, Eric, why did you have Randy read that beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 35? Well, we did because it describes the glories of when Christ will come. And you get the verse 5, and it says, we, when Messiah comes, the blind will see. That's at the heart of this story. Psalm 146.8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah, again writing 700 years before Jesus is born, writes about the blind receiving sight in Isaiah 29.18 and 42.7 and 42.18. Now in the Old Testament, blindness, I can find only one place where blindness is removed. That was uh, an army was bearing down on Elisha, and God, to preserve the prophet, struck the army blind. Elisha led him into uh, where the troops of Israel could care for them, and then when he got them there, it says the Lord removed their blindness. So one could say that God had one healing miracle of blindness, but there's no prophet among the array of miracles in the Old Testament. There's no report of a prophet or a priest or a king healing blindness. 
In fact, as the prophets looked forward to it, that was something that only God could do, but Messiah would do, and it would indicate that he is the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist, remember he was the MC who introduced Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how Jesus' ministry started after the temptation account. Well, they put Herod in jail, and he was in jail, and he sent word and asked, hey, are you the one, or are we to look for somebody else? By the way, John the Baptist wasn't the first guy, nor the last, to be confused about all that God was doing in Christ. Hey, why don't you get on with the program? I thought Christ was going to bring the kingdom. This doesn't look too good. I'm rotting out in jail. Are you the one, or are we to look for another? Jesus, in Matthew eleven four, 4, says this. You go tell John the Baptist that the blind receive their sight. Now, why did he say that? He said that because, according to the prophets, the telltale sign, one of several, that Messiah had come was when the blind received their sight. By the way, it's, I think blind Bartimaeus had absorbed these anticipations from the prophets. In his heart was the thought that if I could ever run into Messiah, it would be great because my blindness could be resolved in the Messiah giving me sight. Now you remember in the synagogue in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, and verse 16, when he begins his ministry and they, they give him the scroll to read it, he changed the passage in the scroll and goes to Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel. And one of the phrases he uses, a, a, a couple of them that I love, to bind up the brokenhearted. Do you realize that's why God sent Jesus? Are you here with a broken heart? Boy, have you come to a good place because Jesus binds up the broken heart. Are you hurting this morning? That's why God sent Jesus, to bind the broken heart. But another phrase that's used in that passage from Isaiah 61 is that he's going to, the recovery of sight for the blind. So this is what is anticipated. Now, in a very, very, very sophisticated logic statement, it goes something like this. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and flies like a duck, it is a duck. And so it was a logical deduction when the blind saw to realize, oh, we are in new territory. This is messianic territory. This is Jesus. Now, the second observation to make is that the last miracle in the book of Mark is the only one in the Gospels that gives the name of the person involved in the miracle. Now, this is important. We live in a world that's anonymous. We've all become a bit of data in a stream of zero ones and we're hiding out in the bowels of somebody's computer. That can seem like in our age, that's all we are. And our age is increasingly anonymous. Notwithstanding all this social networking that we do through social media, we've never been more estranged from each other, so we can feel isolated and lonely in an impersonal world that no one is noticing us where we are. Here, 
this man is named Bartimaeus. It makes it deeply personal. Jesus reached this man, Bartimaeus. That's the only person in this great throng that's named. He wasn't nameless, faceless. He wasn't anonymous. It's about a man, Bartimaeus, who's named. Now, uh, the prefix bar simply means son of Timaeus, who's listed there. You know, his father is Timaeus. He's Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. The only thing I can't figure out, unless you're like George Foreman's family, I think he has three or four sons named George Foreman, but, um, you know, what do you do if you have more than one boy? You know, you know the, the first one's Bartimaeus. Well, then what if you have some more son of Timaeus? What, what do you call them? I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's not the most important thing, just a crazy thought in the midst of trying to say But he's named Bartimaeus and Timaeus. Now, many believe that because they're named, they were also known in the early church, and that's why they were named, and they became a part of the disciple band that joyfully went forward with the church of Jesus Christ. Now, watch for how Christ notices us in our need in this story. Bartimaeus is named. Are you lonely this morning? Do you feel forsaken this morning? Jesus got to Jericho and Bartimaeus is named. And we're still talking about him all these years later. The third observation is our Lord was never in a hurry and people always drove the focus of his attention. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is walking point. He's on a mission. Again, Luke 9, 53, he set his face toward Jerusalem, and he's going there. If you saw Jesus, you'd say, boy, that guy's walking with purpose and meaning. He set his face toward Jerusalem, and there he's gone. I heard Dallas Willard say once, Christ was never in a hurry. And I don't think my conscience has recovered. I think I was born in a hurry. Always trying to accomplish the next thing, rushing off to it. In fact, a consistent criticism of the privilege that I've had in pastoral ministry has been, Mounts, you are so driven on Sunday mornings that you're offending some people. So what, what is it? Like, I, I am, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm shocked, but excited to see Scott Becker. And I know what kind of week he had in Boston. And I, I can't believe he's here. It just, it's glorious. And so, you know, I, I want, real gently, I just want to hug his neck after the service. You know, so after the service, I'll, I'll see somebody. I'll, I'll be praying, and they'll be going through something. Oh, the glories of pastoral ministry and, and, and what you know that others don't know and and what you have access to, and you've been praying quietly, and you know you're not supposed to talk about it, but there they are. Or you've been looking for somebody for weeks, and there they are. So I'm up preaching, and what happens in a freak mind, like, you know, you got like six thoughts, oh, there, there's that guy, I got to talk to him, I, I got to see her, and I, I want to pray with her before she leaves. You know, all the while trying to hold a thought, which may explain why it's like, man, sometimes you don't make a lick of sense, you know, and I, I now you get insight into what's going on. But after the service, I, I bust down and talk to somebody. 
But on the way there, a dear sister would say, Pastor, my Aunt Gert's got a hangnail, and it's coming off at the podiatrist next Tuesday. Will you please pray? You know, and I care for that person. I care for, but I, you know, I'm in a hurry, and I'm on a mission. I'm doing what I think is important. You think somebody was on a mission? Jesus was going to Calvary. He was committed to do the will of God. Son of David, have mercy on me. I uh, find the words of verse 49 striking and convicting. And Jesus stopped. Has God ever intruded on your agenda and all that you were trying to accomplish in an invitation of a new errand for him? How did you respond? Three Fridays ago, I knew I had a lot of driving, and I looked at the weather, and it was going to be horrible. I mean, torrential downpour, great spring rain the whole way and the whole way back. In fact, the first stop at 7, I forget what time that opened. Was it 7 or 7.30 at the car place was to buy new windshield wipers for my car? I thought, if I got to go all day, at least I want the best shot at looking at these crazy things, and, and it, was, it was a monsoon all the way over, a little bit lighter on the way back, but it was uh, windshield wipers on the whole time. So I roll in, I have seven hours of driving, you know, white knuckling the steering wheel, and I'm tired, and then the, the delight, it was Mother's Day weekend, and I knew our daughter was coming in with her little baby girl, and I knew Andy would be delighted and enjoy it. And I was looking at my watch thinking, oh, I bet she's already there. So I'm, I roll in. I'm 10 minutes away. The rain is finally stopping. And as I roll up to the stoplight, um, I see a guy, and he's standing there like this. And I just, I, I could see this part of him. He's got a barrel. And I thought, oh, good night. That guy's standing there with an M4. He's got an assault weapon standing at the light. What I? So I was real cautious about doing it. And then he wheeled around and realized, oh, it's an umbrella. What was I thinking? You know, the crazy thoughts you have. But then it got worse. He, he, he walked over to my car and he knocks on my window. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do? And he, he didn't look real alert. And I wasn't sure. You know, you never know if somebody's high or they're just having a horrible day. And I looked around for any abandoned car or anything. And so I rolled down the window and he said, hey. I need a ride to Covington. Why don't you take me to Covington? I'll give you $5 to take me to Covington. Now, give me, I, I've, I've driven seven hours in the rain, clutched that steering wheel. I'm buck tired. Abby's at home, and Andy's there, and I'm thinking, I don't know who this guy is, and he's not really presenting himself as a person who's um, well intact today. And, and I said, sir, I'm, I'm not going to take you to Covington. I said, I, I've been driving for seven hours, and I'm going to go home. And then I was at one of these lights that's like a three-day light. You know, I'm sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And he decided to come back up to the window. And I thought, oh, no. He said, where's Covington? And I said, it's five miles down that road. He goes, okay. And then he went back there and stood. And then I drive home. Like every mile, my conscience is getting thundered and thundered. And I thought, well, I'll just put this behind me. And I did till I was, and Jesus stopped. And he said, call him. I don't know whatever my agenda was that night, but I, Jesus was going to Calvary. And one could argue, that's a huge errand. Nothing should thwart that. And Jesus stopped. 
And he said, call him. You know, when we are facing hard stuff, one of the things that Satan does is he takes us over in a corner, he turns out the light, and he says, hey, nobody cares that you're over here, but it's worse. Nobody knows. And no one has noticed your burdened heart. I want you to know that's a lie. And when Jesus rolls up on our life, he sees us. And more than sees us and knows, he stops. And more than sees us and knows and stops, he invites us to him. Call him. What a savior. Jesus stops and invites us to come. He's stopping next to you this morning. Now we're ready for the story. Let's study it together. Blindness to sight. Do you see what I see? This story drips with such irony because the person who sees Jesus the most clear is blind in this story. You have the hordes going on. They're going to go up. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later, crucify him. They all leap. Here's a man. He recognized Jesus for who he was. Even a blind man could see. It was quite a rebuke to the unbelieving. Now, three inroads into our hearts. Inroad number one. Our hearts are revealed in what we ask of God. Look at verse 36 of Mark chapter 10. James and John, beating on their chest, come up to Jesus as it were. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now look across the page at verse 51. Jesus said to blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question. The same question to James and John. The same question to blind Bartimaeus. For James and John, it was all about power, position, prestige, and it was all about them. We want to sit at your right hand and be recognized as the right-handers. That's a seat for us. We want that. Give it to us. Where blind Bartimaeus, he's very modest in his response. He didn't say, I want you to make me really wealthy. He didn't say, I want this, I want that. I want this, and I also want that. He, he asked for something very ordinary and human and natural. He said, I would like to receive my sight. Now, our heart is revealed in what we ask. So let's think about what we are asking. If I would have been next to you or you would have been next to me this week, and you would have listened to me pray, or I would have listened to you pray, what would I have concluded about what was in your heart after I listened to you? What would you have concluded about what was in my heart after you listened to me? What do you want me to do for you? I fear too many of our prayers don't rise too much above 
Janis Joplin's famous prayer she made into a minute and 47 second song and recorded it. She didn't write these words, but she sang them and owned them. I don't know how sober she was when she recorded it. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. I work hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? She goes on. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing for dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? She goes on. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Notice this line. Show me you love me and buy the next round. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? Now, one could argue that Janice was interested in the gifts of God. (laughs) I am not covered over with the conviction that she was very interested in the giver at all. We can learn a lot about a person by listening to what they ask for in prayer. How about you? How about me? Secondly, the second inroad into our heart. Many take Jesus' benefits without giving them their hearts. Look at verse 52. What's the legacy of this story? What happened after he received his sight? And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. That's the word saved. Your faith has saved you. It's made you well, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, that is the nomenclature of New Testament discipleship. Following the Lord, remember Matthew 4.12, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And then in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 23, the Christian movement is called the way. And so Mark embeds this language of discipleship to suggest that as soon as Bartimaeus received the gift of Jesus, he became an indomitable follower of Jesus with a grateful heart. And he followed him on the way. Now, don't forget where this way is taking him. This is the way of Calvary. He's going to his death, and he's following Jesus. Bartimaeus leaves little doubt where his loyalties lie. He immediately threw his lot in with Jesus. Have we? What a great giver of gifts is Jesus Christ. The question remains, do we love the giver? Bartimaeus attaches himself to Jesus. This is no footnote on the nine who were healed of leprosy who didn't come back to Jesus and just walked off with a good gift. Not at all. Immediately, he turns and throws in his lot with Jesus and follows him. You say, Eric, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in a little bit of Jesus. That get out of hell free card that I stuck in my billfold in 74 or in 95 or in 2011, I, I kind of like having that in there. You know, every once in a while I run into it, reaching for some money that I have in, in my billfold. Do we want his gifts 
or do we want him? Blind Bartimaeus was impacted by this. I love that English phrase, I am in her debt. I am in his debt. Be speaking that loyal devotion to a person who has offered something extraordinary. If you drive out in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia, you'll stumble across a little place called Gilbert, West Virginia. Coming into town, it says, Welcome to Gilbert, population 407. Richest man in West Virginia lived there for a while, and uh, his timber business went crazy and global, and his coal business went crazy and global too. And he came to know the Lord when he was 30 years old, in the midst of uh, almost ruining his life and indulgence, and was a very generous man. One morning, a man threw a newspaper on his front door, and then that same man, later in the morning, uh, the rich man observed, uh, pumped his gas tank full of gas. Later that night, when he went to the Gilbert High football game, that same man was in the ticket booth selling tickets. And after he took his tickets, he looked at him and he says, Young man, I have concluded you're not adverse to work. Why don't you come and see me? And so he did. And Buck put his arm around Terry and sent Terry off to Harvard Law School and uh, got him through there. And he came back, and there it is, hidden in plain sight, 407 people there, a Harvard lawyer, who has spent his career, and he's really good at it, figuring out how to get permitting approved by the EPA so that in the middle of those trillion-dollar coal fields uh, where there's not very many jobs, men in southern West Virginia can work. And it's fascinating to hear them talk about each other before the rich man died talking about Terry and Terry talking about the legacy of having that guy put his arm around. He never recovered. He's never left the community. And he's turned and poured himself into the causes of the person who put his arm around him. That's Bartimaeus. Now the question before us this morning is, is it us? Or have we grabbed the gifts and run for the car, get back on the Audubon of the good life, and, you know, come back into the filling station and grab a Twinkie and get back out there to the good life? Or are we uniquely devoted to this one who loved us and gave himself for us? Finally. The rescued know who they are and they know who Jesus is and they take advantage of the opportunity to respond to him. Now in the Gospels, it's interesting who knows who Jesus is. The demons do. And they call him out. Son of David! This Old Testament title anticipated from those great promises to King David in 2 Samuel 7 about one of his sons who would come to be Messiah. The demons do, but nobody else recognizes him as such, and Jesus didn't want that kind of advertisement, so he said, you know, be silent. Bartimaeus knows who he is. In fact, Mark very artfully notes that in verse 47, and when he heard that it was, here's who Mark reports was in town, 
Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, that's very earthy. Oh, Nazareth, that two-bit town up there by Galilee. Yeah, just a regular Jesus guy from Jesus of Nazareth. Bartimaeus would have none of it. He knew who he was. And so as soon as he heard, he immediately got vocal. And he got vocal about his understanding of who was before him. Son of David, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. Son of David, son of David. He's calling him out. He's blind and he sees Jesus clearly. The masses were apart from any clues. He recognized Jesus for who he was. You know, blind Helen Keller was asked, isn't it terrible to be blind? I love her reply. Better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. And one question before us is, have we seen Jesus for all that he is? Some thought it was a two-bit guy from Nazareth coming through, Jesus of Nazareth. But Bartimaeus would have none of it. That is Jesus Christ, the son of David, Messiah himself. He clearly saw who Jesus is, and he knew who Jesus is. He also knew who he was. And it forces us to ask, do we? Because not only does he recognize Jesus, son of David, he recognized himself. Have mercy on me. Because, you know, mercy is what we get from God that keeps us from what we deserve. He recognized himself as a sinner without hope apart from God's mercy. So what he reaches for right away and up front and at first is the mercy of God. And what we get right away and up front and at first from God is God's mercy offered in Jesus Christ. And his mercy keeps us from what we do deserve. All of us have offended a God who is holy, whose standard is be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in thought or word or deed, all of us have offended God and therefore are estranged and have put ourselves instead for the just condemnation of God in hell. What we need from God is what keeps us from what we deserve, and that's mercy. And what we get in Jesus is mercy. He not only was ringingly clear on who Jesus was, son of David, he was ringingly clear on what his need was. His need was for the mercy of God. And the other thing that I love about this guy is he took advantage of the opportunity. And I want you to take advantage of the opportunity this morning. He was not going to let this pass by. Now the crowd began to have him settle down. Hey, quiet down. Don't you know it's Jesus going by? By the way, how do you respond to people that you have high respect for and need from? I, I remember once, uh, and it, our daughter, when she was five years old, I read her a story about a little girl who was five years old in Jonathan Edwards Church in Colonial America that came to place her faith in Christ. Her name was Phoebe Bartlett. Because Abby was so young, though moved by the story and professed faith in Christ, we wanted as parents to follow up on her. So I went on a search to find out everything I could about Phoebe Bartlett. 
In fact, I may be the world's expert on Phoebe Bartlett only because the rest of the world doesn't care at all about who Phoebe Bartlett was. But I worked for several years, and one of the last things I tried to figure out was where is she buried? Because I wanted to take Abby there as a young girl and celebrate her faith in Christ in this way. So I did all this research, and I thought, oh, I should, I should go read a paper. So I feigned to be a scholar and went to an uh, evangelical theological society meeting and, and read a paper to a group of people who came in to listen to the paper. It was a very, very good thing that I was so nervous and had my head down, I didn't see who was in the crowd because my dear mentor and professor who had poured his life into mine and was a brilliant scholar, he came to listen to me read the paper. It was wonderful that I found out after the fact because my spit would have dried up and I would have swallowed my tongue and gone into cardiac arrest if I knew he had been there. But he came in, sat down, as I was there, he told me later he was there and heard it. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm glad I didn't see you there. Because I would have gotten nervous. I would have shied back. You know what? There was no nervousness. There was no shy in this. This man knew who Jesus was and is. And he knew who he was. And he knew of his great need. And he thought, I'm going to lay hold of this opportunity. And the crowd said, shut up. And he responded by saying, louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Nothing was going to deter him from getting to Jesus. By the way, that kind of resolve will bring you right unto Christ. Are you that interested in him? Where are you with him this morning? Do you recognize that you are in need of his mercy? He's available to you. Do you recognize who he is and in whose presence we are? The Son of God, the living Lord of glory in human form has come after us and we have the opportunity and he's stopping here this morning inviting you to respond. Where is your heart? What is God doing? Let's be found responsive. Let's pray. Lord, as you stop here this morning and see people in need, and none of us have ever lived, whether we know you personally or whether we already have begun a relationship with you, but none of us have ever lived, but that we've lived in desperate need of you. You stop and see us. You have such a willing heart. What do you want me to do for you? Oh, God, work in our hearts. Heal wounds. Bind up broken hearts. Bring people to repent of sin in seeking you. Hear our prayer right now before we sing. Oh, Spirit of God, draw out of our hearts the very thing we need to do to respond to you. Now, Lord, give us grace to respond. Give us the resolve of blind Bartimaeus. Give us the clear sight of Bartimaeus. Oh, Lord, we give to you our hearts this morning as we stand and sing and seek you together.
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.